Thanks for being on the channel with me today. Hi, Bluebird. I am thrilled to be here talking to you. Right. So Nancy is my former uh, teacher from the Kwatlin Brewing Program, and she's also Canada's first ever female uh, head brewmaster. So I'm just delighted to have you on here. And yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about your career today. Yeah. So could you just kind of quickly introduce yourself and tell us how you got started in the brewing industry? Sure. My name is Nancy Moore, and I studied um, chemistry at the University of Alberta and had the same attitudes to beer as most students did. I drank a lot of it. And uh, when I finished, um, finished, or I wasn't even finished university, I saw an ad that said Labatt was looking for technical people, and I thought, that sounds like fun. Uh, so I went through the process of, uh, of um, applying and eventually they offered me the job and I decided I would do it until it wasn't fun anymore. And the wonderful thing about this industry is that I lasted 27 and a half years in that business. And then I just switched to another company and kept on, uh, kept on in the industry because it is fun. So I started as a technical trainee with Labatt, which meant I spent three years Shoveling yeast, carrying malt bags, uh, learning how to overhaul fillers, uh, running basically every piece of equipment and learning about both the practical of jobs, but also reading and studying the science behind it, writing exams, sometimes acting as a, as a supervisor for a department. So you really learned everything from the, every job in the brewery. And in fact, my very first day, and I think now this may have been deliberate, the first job they gave me was to go with the uh, people that were unloading a rail car full of Karistan malt bags. And we had to take these 25 kilo bags off of the rail car, put them on pallets, take them up the elevator and unload them uh, up at the top of the, um, of the malt room. And now I look back and I'm thinking, well, did they do that on my first day just to see if I was actually willing to do it? I'm not sure, but I did. And then I basically okay. spent three years um, training and, and I had some fascinating experiences because there were, I was one of two women that were hired that year as trainees. And uh, this was pretty new to a lot of people to have a woman. This was completely new to a lot of these people to have women in the brewery. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the people in the fermentation cellar were really concerned because they'd always been taught by their, the German brewers that if a woman came into uh, the fermenting cellar and she had her period, that the yeast would stop fermenting. So there was a lot of very nervous people around there when I first showed up. But the good news is I did, it didn't, uh, we all learned from it. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was new for all of these guys. They, from, for me to, to work with them, from carrying malt bags, uh, cleaning tanks in the cellars, uh, basically doing everything. But the, the interesting thing to me and the sign of the people in the brewing industry is that the people that were probably the most skeptical, one fellow called me a heretic for thinking that men could work for women, but when it really came down to the summer and I was replacing his department supervisor, he was probably the biggest help to me. He came into the office to make sure that I understood everything that was going on so we could do a good job together. So it was, um, yeah, I think we all, we all learned from that. 
I certainly did any anyway about how to work with people. And after finishing training, um, I did I, I did brewing training. I moved in Kitchener Waterloo. I moved to London, Ontario, and worked in packaging there. And then I moved to Edmonton, Alberta, and did some more productivity work. And then I started my first real job as an assistant brewmaster. And I worked my way basically from there uh, through different layers of management, from the assistant brewmaster to a quality manager. And then uh, in 1985, I, no, that's wrong, 1988, I moved to um, uh, St. John, New Brunswick, where I was given the job of the head brewmaster for uh, for Olin's uh, brewery, uh, Olin, the Olin Labatt Brewery uh, there. And that was uh, a whole nother uh, step up of learning to to deal with uh, to deal with people and uh, and manage manage them and lead them more more important. And there were lots of people there that every odd question about the brewery came to my phone. You know, if someone wanted to know about beer, and sometimes I'd answer the phone and go, you know, good afternoon, Nancy, and they would say, well, I need to talk to someone about beer. And it's like, yeah, what can I help you with? No, no, no. I really need to talk to someone who knows something about beer. And we go through this and underneath, I was probably saying, you've got about three seconds to start listening to me before I hang up on you. But usually I was able to convince them that I knew something about beer. And my family loved that because it was a very impressive title to tell everybody. Where did I go from there? I came back to the West Coast. I ran quality for BC and uh, out of New Westminster. And then I moved to Creston, BC, where I ran the Columbia Brewery uh, for five years, which was an amazing group of people. Um, we had ads that talked about the 99 people that care, and they absolutely made my job easier, and they made me work harder because you don't want to disappoint people that care that much about what they're, uh, what they're doing. And then it was someone picked up the phone one day, picked up the phone one day and someone said, do you want to go to Russia? And I couldn't think of any reason not to. Uh, so I, uh, I picked up and uh, actually it's probably a sign of, of um, I'm not sure what, maybe I'm crazy. But I was on my way to um, to a retreat center on on somewhere off Vancouver, one of the Gulf Islands, and I stopped and read an email on the way, and they said, "If you can get to Brussels in two weeks with a Russian visa, you can. We have a Learjet chartered, and we're going to fly around Russia to all the breweries, and you can come and see what it's like." And it's like, okay. And so I proceeded to on Gabriola Island, pulling in all sorts of favors from people that I knew uh, and got a Russian visa delivered to me at the Calgary airport and flew to, landed in Brussels and made it on that trip. And that was my first introduction to, you know, Siberia and Moscow and all the different breweries. And that was the start of three years of a great adventure. And in, in Russia, yeah, we, we really redeveloped all the breweries. We built new ones. We started a um, development program for the maltings. We, uh, develop, we had to develop a new beer every three months uh, for the marketing guys. And we had to teach the people about modern brewing techniques. 
So a lot of it was about teaching people how to not only technically make beer, but how to be great business and business people and leaders. So that was a, it was one of those days where someone offers you a chance and I'm so grateful that I took it. How were the uh, breweries run in Russia and Siberia different compared to in Canada? Um, well, so what the Soviets did in the, in the early 70s, they built 200 breweries across, Rus- across Russia and the Ukraine, the whole uh, former Soviet Union. And they brought in, uh, there was a Czech model and there was an East German model, and they brought in the appropriate people to train them. And that's really where brewing stayed. Uh, until the the Western breweries came in and started working. So there was not only the technology differences, which we needed to teach them about what was modern people. When I got there and I was talking to the scientific committee for brewing in uh, the Russian Federation, they assured us that ale yeast could never grow to more than... Um, so I think it was 10 million cells per mill. It would never grow more than that. Well, it would. It would grow, as as brewers <laughs> all know, it grows to much higher um, uh, concentrations than that. So we had to teach new methods of beer and much faster methods of brewing beer. Um, they were still working on the old, <laughs> let's leave the beer in the tanks for six weeks. I think the... And then the people, just teaching the people about different leadership methods about talking to people um mm-hmm. yeah i remember we sent uh, what's the word i'm looking for one of our people that we thought was going to be a leader in the business we sent him to back to toronto for three months to to go to the mm-hmm. to toronto brewery and just work there for a while and see what it was like and igor came back and he said oh nancy he mm-hmm. says I, I don't know what to say because i learned so much but you know it really wasn't about technical brewing things. It was about how you people work in Canada. And I, and I laughed because I said, Igor, that was what you were hmm. sent there for. So it really was about learning new ways of, uh, new ways of working. We had, to, we had to sort of get okay. around the Soviet cool. ways and teach them, teach them different leadership skills. So that was, it, was, it was really exciting. Um, we, you know, we, we did so much new... Uh, and I realized one day that I knew I'd been successful when I realized that I could go out into the market in Moscow and I could drink any beer that we had um, produced. I could empty any bottle. I could actually drink the whole thing. Whereas when I got there, the shelf life of beer was about three days. So we were teaching them lots about microbiology mm. and cleaning and things like that. So it was when the beer became stable enough to drink in public um, that I knew I had had an impact there. So I spent three years there and had an amazing time. Um, I learned some Russian. I learned enough Russian to get into trouble and out of trouble. Um, but that was uh, that was okay. And then... Um, InBev, I think in, by then we changed the name of Interbrew to InBev, and they asked me to come and work in the global innovation team. So I had a very fancy title. I was the global director of brewing product and process development, uh, which meant that I, with all the breweries uh, around the world, 
Uh, my team uh, developed new beers, new global beers, and they developed new ways of making uh, of making beer. Looking at things like fermentation, learning about about uh, how do you control it so you got consistent uh, consistent beers, which was it was a whole new world for me. I never worked in research before. I found it a little frustrating because fundamentally at heart, I'm an operations person. So I like to see where I've been successful. And when I, um, when I got, um, when I got there, some of these projects were like 10 years long. And so the, the achievements didn't come day by day. They came year by year. So that for me was a little, it was a little difficult. And so I told everybody, get me back into operations. Um, but it was still, it was interesting. I learned a lot. Uh, we had an amazing team of brewing experts, all the, the doctors of brewing uh, <laughs> that were in the technical centers. We had three of them, one in Korea, one in uh, Leuven, Belgium, and one in London, Ontario. So we had this amazing team that, you know, no matter what question I asked, somebody had the answer. So I learned a lot about brewing there. I know you went to um, Africa. Well, actually, I'll let you just continue. Sorry. Africa comes next uh, because while I was uh, going back and forth from Belgium to Canada a lot, uh, the people at, uh, at Diageo, at Guinness, uh, came looking for me because they'd already hired away uh, one of my colleagues. Uh, another Labatt colleague had was uh, was uh, in the business, and he wanted someone to support him in what they called international beer supply. So John kept calling me and saying, "Come work with me. You'll have fun." And it's uh, there's a great ways to make a difference in this business. And so I, you know, I would, on, on my way back from, from Brussels to, to uh, Canada, I sometimes stopped off at their offices to talk to people. And they really, there were, there were several, several things that, that really appealed to me about that, that, were, were, that I was willing to make the change. One was when I walked into the head office at, uh, at Park Royal, uh, Hangar Lane uh, in London, there was a... Uh, there was a sign on the wall, which was the company's purpose. And it was to celebrate life every day, everywhere. And I thought, I can do that. I actually want to work for a company that celebrates life. Uh, so it wasn't all about hard work. It was about doing great things and doing things. It was about helping people celebrate the milestones in their, um, in their lives. And that's what we do as brewers. It's the thing that I think makes it such a great um, profession that you can go out, you know, at night or in the afternoon and you can watch how your products are helping people have a better day, help them solving the problems of their lives, helping them celebrate what's going, what's going on. And that, I really love that. And I was really pretty close to retiring at Labatt and the, um, the people in, um, and I and I said that to uh, one of the people that was uh, interviewing me uh, from Diageo, and and I said, look, you know, my goal is to finish off my last. I think it was seven years at the time, 
and then go spend my time making the world a better place, you know, paying back for all the privilege <laughs> and the, you know, all the success I'd had was not because of me. It was, be, you know, I mean, I was in a privileged place to start, to start with, you know, with education and opportunities and, and he, I will never forget. He looked me in the face and he said, Nancy, you can come and join us and work in Africa and you will make that difference to people every day that you're there and still get paid for it. <laughs> so wow. he really, that idea of making a difference through your work was incredibly appealing to me. It's part of my purpose in life is to make a difference. It's part of the reason I'm, it is the reason I'm still teaching. Um, mm. Certainly not for the money, sorry, Quantlin. Um, it's because I want the next, I want to help raise the next generation of, uh, of brewers. Mm -hmm. And not it's not entirely altruistic. I also want to make sure that there's great beer being, um, being brewed out there. So I will always have something to, uh, some great beer to drink. Wow. So I jumped ship and I moved from London, Ontario to London, England, which was really confusing for all the movers to try and figure out where oh, I was yeah. coming from and where I was going. But eventually both me and my belongings arrived in London, but I really only spent uh, maybe a quarter of the time in London. Most of the time I was on the road through Africa, Asia, basically international beer supply, we were responsible for all the beer outside of Ireland. Wow. So we um, we had a lot of had a lot of people on the road, and we were doing much the same as uh, as I was doing in Russia. And the wonderful thing for anybody who's ever thought of working in the developing world, and here's why you want to do it, because in North America. We work our hearts off mm -hmm. to get a half a percent or a one percent improvement in something, whether that's in quality or cost or waste. But in the developing world, you can give somebody the right piece of information and they can make an improvement in what they're doing. Now, 10 percent, 20 percent overnight, they can take mm -hmm. that information. And so you're you're helping them make great beer and you're helping them again become great leaders in their own countries because you can't run a brewery, a brewing company from head office. It has to be done by the people in the countries, by the locals. So it's such a way to know that you're bringing, that you're making a difference in the world. So yeah, Africa was, was fabulous. If anyone's anyone that's ever been to Africa, will know exactly what I mean when I say Africa gets in your blood. And the people, just like the people, like the people everywhere in the world, people are wonderful. Um, but in Africa, it's really, uh, it's really such genuine warmth and, uh, and caring and, you know, yeah, caring for what they're doing, passion, passion for life, passion for what they're doing. And they're happy. They're happier than we are. Oh. So it's a lovely, a lovely place to, uh, to spend time and to have great, you know, have great experiences. Um, one of the, one of the weird things I got to do there, uh, was that we'd been working with our South African teams 
to create and launch a um, a new cider uh, a mm-hmm. new cider brand. And the people in South Africa, the team in South Africa, had worked really hard to find someone who could. Um, produce the cider for us because you know we didn't have uh, we didn't have the the, we, the right tanks in the business then we had different yeasts we didn't have cider yeasts we didn't have any of those things so we said now better we'll pay you to produce it and we'll we're, we'll develop the recipe and then our people will take it and market it and sell it which was really great up until about. Three months, two to three months before our launch date, mm-hmm. uh, and everybody loves the liquid, and everybody loves what we're what, what's coming out. And then the uh, the European company that actually owned the cider brand, because it was part of a bre- it was part of another brewery in uh, in Africa. They said, "No, we don't want to co-produce. We don't want we don't want to produce it for you. We don't want to contract brew." Because they hadn't been using the cider plant, it was sitting empty, um, and this was going to mean they were going to bring the cider, and the cider yeasts would need to go into their packaging plants. And that's any time you have significantly different and you know non-culture yeasts in a brewery, you run the risk of cross contamination. And they decided it was too high. So we kind of, we went, oh, now what? And my, the team in South Africa were amazing. They came back and they said, we've done the business case on it. We think that if we buy that cider plant from them, we can keep on going. And if, if you can just give us, you know, the assistance and the help and the team, you know, legal and accounting and engineering to work on this project, we, can, we think we can make this happen. So I went and talked to my boss and said, okay, what do you think? And I wasn't asking for very much money, all things considered. It was under two million pounds. And as they told me in a big business like Guinness, a million pounds is a rounding error, which kind of made me gulp. Um, But they gave us permission and the team worked through the night, through weekends. They flew back and forth from Europe to South Africa and and we bought a cider plant um, in about three weeks, wow. and started it up, and did the did the test running, and made a really successful brand out of it. So that was that was something you don't often get to do. Some anything so fast, yeah. And it and at Diageo, we talked a lot about simpler, faster, better. Mm-hmm were th- th- three things that any company needed always to be. And everyone looked at that as an example of something we did simply, we did it faster, and it was better because we got our brand to the market. Mm-hmm. So you don't often get to do things like that. So I've, I've been involved in all sorts of weird and wonderful projects just just like that. Yeah. What's the name of the cider brand? Oh, don't ask me. It was it was Foundry Cider, but there is also a Foundry Cider in North America, and that's not—it's not that okay. one. Uh, so it was pretty, it was strictly for South, strictly for South Africa. Okay. But I, I think the thing about Africa that for me was uh, was really fulfilling was we were there at a time where uh, most well, most uh, municipalities and cities didn't have, for example, effluent treatment plants. And 
so we went and we installed, we built our own uh, effluent treatment plants for all of our breweries. We invested, I think one year it was 130 million uh, pounds uh, across Africa. And about half of that was environmental uh, projects. Um, We learned, we had to learn to do things like the... Water was a problem in some countries. So we started whole new processes of managing water for uh, water stressed areas. Like um, we collected rainwater from the roofs. We didn't use it in the beer, but we used it, you know, for cleaning uh, floors and other places in the brewery. Um, We, one year in Nigeria, over the course of the year, we went from having uh, electrical power from the grid from 75% of the time down to 4% of the time. It's really hard to run a brewery when you don't have electrical power. Yeah. Um, so we figured out, the, the team figured out how to, first we installed generators, diesel generators, but that was really expensive and environmentally it was a bad thing to do. Mm-hmm. So we had to install our own natural gas lines uh, into the breweries and put natural gas in both to save money and because environmentally it was the right thing to do. So it was, it was just full of um, challenges that you would never get in North America because in North America, everything works. Sometimes it feels like it doesn't, but trust me, everything works. So yeah, Africa was, and Africa was brilliant for me because I got to, I went down there, um, for a year and lived in Nigeria and worked with them on a year that they had a lot of mm-hmm. big projects uh, happening. But what I'm most proud of that there was I, when I left, I spent a lot of time coaching employees. They would just come to my office and they would talk to me about how do you do this and what could we do? And after I left and I came home to Canada, mm-hmm. two of them got big promotions. And they both called me to thank me. And they said, they said exactly the same thing. And I think it's really an important thing for all of us in any business. They both said, Nancy, we got these jobs. And I think I got the job because of what you taught me. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the new job is really tough, but I sit down at my desk and I ask myself, what question would Nancy ask me right now? Because I tried always to avoid giving people answers. Mm-hmm. I always tried to ask, to ask them questions. And by asking them questions, then they learned themselves how to do it. And, and the fact that both of them said the same thing said to me that that was, that was a key part of how I contributed to that business that year, mm-hmm. was teaching people the power of questions. So I came back to Canada in um, the spring of 2013, and it was just at the time that Kwantlen was um, was thinking about starting up the brewing program. And sometime that summer, a friend of mine who worked at Kwantlen sent me the posting that said Kwantlen was looking for people to write curriculum for <laughs> their for this brewing program. And I literally thought, ah. 
I got nothing to do. I can do that. Mm-hmm. I had no intention of teaching. I was retired. <laughs> and they, and so I went out and I was interviewed and Dominic Bernard and I ended up writing the curriculum together. Uh, and it, so it was fun. It was, but we, if I knew now everything I knew then about teaching, it might've been different. Um, but I think, I think it was pretty good. And we were ready to start that first intake in 2014. And then Kwanlin came and said, did I want to teach? And I said, well, not full time. Mm-hmm. So we agreed that they, so I was interviewed and I passed the interview and they said I could come out and, you know, I could teach as much as I wanted. So I come out one day a week. It, t- it still takes five days a week to do all the preparation, wow. but I go out to Kwanlin or I went out to Kwanlin and I will again in the fall um, go out one day a week and, and interact with the students. Mm-hmm. And again, that experience is about making a difference mm-hmm. to all the, the young and old people that come to the program and are the next generation of brewers. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, it is about, it is always about the people. I've been asked, what's the thing I'm most proud of? And I will tell you what I'm most proud of is the people that I have been involved with and worked with that are going out to do great things in Mm -hmm. our industry. Okay. Wow. Very cool. Um, I do want to touch upon the fact that when you started, there was very few women in the industry. And so did you find it more difficult? Oh, I'm not sure I was smart enough to know that. My parents said, so I come from a family Mm -hmm. of four girls And whenever there was anything to be done, whether it was hauling rocks off of a new Mm -hmm. lawn or helping my father do something, you know, around the house or the yard, we were it. So there was there was no differentiation in my life between what men did and what women did, because we were in the household. We were all we were all dad's crew. Um, And I think that there was never any question when I was being brought up about what I could or couldn't do. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure I even realized it was a problem for a while or that it would be a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, I just assumed that I was going to go, I was going to do a good job and that was going to be it. Mm-hmm. And then, there, but there were, you know, I, my very first Christmas party um, or maybe the second one in London, Ontario. And my boss hauled me over to meet someone Um and this guy was just about the same height as me, which is not very tall. And, and he, you know, I was introduced and he looked at me and he always had a cigar in his mouth and he looked at me with a cigar in his mouth and looked me up and down. And he said, Oh, he says, you're Nancy Moore. I've heard about you. Women of your persuasion don't normally make it in this business. <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay. okay. Didn't really know what he meant, but I wasn't going to question it. I was just, a, you know, I was a trainee. <laughs> Didn't mm-hmm. question the big bosses. Mm-hmm. Um, and a few years after that, uh, I had a, was a, doing a performance review, and the uh, person that was giving it was responsible for quality right across Canada. And he said, Well, you know, what would you like to do in a few years? And I said, mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'd really like to do what you're doing. And he looked at me and he said, don't you think that's a little bit ambitious? And I thought, nope. And in actual fact, I went far beyond where he was in the company. So I'm, I'm actually, 
quite, uh, I, I'm, I thought, yeah, no, I wasn't being too ambitious. Mm-hmm. So there were, you know, lots of times that did I get tried on more than the guys did? Was it harder for me to start in, mm-hmm. in the business in each new job? Yes, at the start. Um, but I think eventually my reputation um, was made and people understood that, no, I, I really did know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I was, I'm still proud of the fact that in every job I had, somebody always walked up and told me I was the best boss they ever had. Oh, really? That's and nice. I think it was, I think I can't. I think I kept on going. I kept on, you know, beating my head against the opposition that I think I didn't even realize was opposition until much later. And I realized that life wasn't like this for everybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, I realized that I kept, I had a different vision of what leadership was and how you could run a business. And I just wanted to keep going until I could get to the position to show people that my ideas worked mm. and, and they did. And I did. So it, it really was a different model. You know, there was all sorts of problems like, you know, people thought that after a brewer's meeting, it was acceptable to go to a strip club. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I wasn't interested, didn't want to go, but but it excluded me from the discussions and the team building uh, that went on in those things. And not everybody was like that. I, I had I had bosses I worked for, and I'll call out oh people like Ivan Garrison and Bill White, uh, Steve Kwai, who were all men who, when they realized what was happening. You know, I remember Bill White after after somebody, a team went out for a final lunch with someone and chose to go to a strip club that they knew I wouldn't go to. Instead of me being able to join them, yeah. they thought it was more important to go there. And on, uh, I was furious. I was, I literally left the brewery that afternoon, went on my bicycle and rode very fast a long ways, just trying to burn off the energy. Mm-hmm. And I... And I stewed about it all weekend and I went in on Monday morning and I, I, before Bill arrived in his office, I was standing in front of his, his uh, office door and he looked at me and says, oh, he says, I thought about you all weekend. Mm-hmm. And what he said was, that will never happen again. Not as long as I'm in this business, that will never mm-hmm. happen again. And, and he made sure it didn't. So it wasn't all bad. There were people in there that they're, they 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 helped me be successful, and okay. and all of us can find diversity. And the, the thing that that I get, I'm concerned about now is the stories I hear from young people in the industry, women, um, uh, BIPOC, uh, gender fluid, or different, you know different sexual orientations, minorities in our business Mm -hmm. is that they're facing the same sort of situations that I did. And as an industry, we need to change that Mm -hmm. because those are brilliant people that we're Mm -hmm. not giving a fair chance to. Mm -hmm. And now I'll get off that soapbox, (laughs) (laughs) but it's an important one. Mm -hmm. No, no, thank you. Thank you for that. 
Um, yeah, I just want to move on to some subscriber questions. So the first one is from Walter L. Uh, what are some of the best practices for a diacetyl rest? Okay, that's I try and teach my students that in microbiology. There's two things that are really important about the diacetyl rest. Um, and they and so if you can do those, if you can can manage both of those, then you will be best practice. And the first one is that we know that the flavors, most of the flavor um, production in uh, by the yeast happens in the first 60 hours of the fermentation while the yeast is growing. It's in the growing, it's in the yeast growth phase that the metabolism of flavor development takes place. So, and the temperature is really important to that. So one of the first thing is you need to make sure before you start a diacetyl rest that your major flavor development has taken place. Because if you raise the temperature too early, you're going to get more esters and you're gonna get more higher alcohols. So you'll change the flavor of your, of your beer. And then you think about what are we trying to do in the diacetyl rest? Well, we're trying to raise the temperature. And by raising the temperature, we do two things. The, we increase the conversion step. So I'm gonna stop there. Diacetyl, the whole diacetyl um, production and reduction process is three steps. There's formation, happens earlier. Then there's conversion of the pre diacetyl precursor, acetolactate, into diacetyl itself. And then the yeast reduces the um, diacetyl uh, into 2,3-butanediol that uh, has a very low uh, flavor threshold and is inoffensive in the beer. So the increase in temperature in the diacetyl rest increases the uh, conversion uh, because it's, it's a, uh, it's a uh, chemical process, not a yeast process, the conversion. So it increases the conversion and it also will increase the reduction, the ability of the yeast to reduce the diacetyl. It takes the diacetyl back into the cell and reduces it to 2,3-butanediol. So you need to get an increased temperature. That's the important part of the rest. So you need to start that uh, diacetyl rest at a time that there's sufficient gravity, fermentable gravity left to cause the temperature to increase. So late enough that the esters and higher alcohols have already formed, but and early enough that there is still fermentable sugars left to cause the temperature to increase and cause the diacetyl um, process to come to completion. Uh, so we usually say final gravity, um, I like to measure that by doing a quick fermentation where at the start of the fermentation, you take a small sample of wort, you throw a bunch of yeast in, uh, oxygenate it by stirring it up and let it ferment out. And you'll find out what the final gravity of your beer is going to be. So if you take final gravity plus, I don't know, one and a half to two degrees Play-Doh, you have enough gravity uh, left there to uh, cause the, uh, the temperature rise that, uh, you, uh, that, that you require to finish off the diacetyl. All right. Thank you for that. 
Well, Brewbird, how well, did you. I do? Yes, I it was very thorough. You just went into teacher mode. Your whole demeanor changed when you were answering yeah. it. Now, really, what I should have done is have you answer that because you know the answer to that question. <laughs> I All right, next question, next question uh, from Matthew Baker. What trends do you think will become more popular in the next five to 10 years? Oh, five to 10 years is a long way out in the brewing industry. Uh, so I'm not sure that I, I, I wouldn't even start that one. I think right now, clearly what's happening is lots of focus on fruit beers, um, which is bringing in portions of the population that aren't it, that don't like really bitter beers. I, th I mm -hmm. think that what has been happening is there are, I'm seeing more breweries um, getting good at making lagers. Therefore the question on the diacetyl uh, rest is really, really important. Uh, and I think that as the craft brewing industry wants to grow it's going to need to grow um, into a bigger population beyond the beer geeks. So I think you will find more breweries mm -hmm. making sure they've got a pale ale or a golden ale or a, a, um, or a um, lager in their portfolio. The other one I would like to see um, is mm -hmm. that there's been a lot of brewers focusing on really high, big, high alcohol beers, which is okay, but I like drinking beer. So I would rather drink two beers at 5% than one beer at 10%. So I actually do go to my local yeah. uh, beer store or my local brewery and I look for a local, I look for a lower alcohol beer so I can drink more beer. Uh, and from a economic point of view as a brewer, you're not going to get that much more money for a 10% beer than you are for a 5% and you're throwing mm -hmm. a lot of uh, more materials uh, into that process. So that one I think is good for, for everyone. And globally around the world, there's more people interested in mid-strength, lower alcohols and non-alcoholic beers. Non-alcoholic beers are growing. They're a bit of a challenge mm -hmm. because there are some um, safety concerns. Um, if you take the alcohol out, it's one of the protectors of, um, of the growth of pathogens in beer. I tell people to drink, if they're in a developing country, drink beer because the combination of alcohol, hops, uh, CO2, uh, high CO2, low oxygen, and uh, low pH protect the beer. So you can't get sick from beer. Um, but when you remove the alcohol, that's a bit of a risk. So I think brewers mm -hmm. that are going to go into non-alcoholic beers a better seriously think about how are they protecting themselves and the consumer um, with the alcohol missing. But I think it's definitely going to grow. I'm now keeping... Um, non-alcoholic beers mm -hmm. in uh, my, and I'll give a shout out to Gary and uh, the group at uh, Central City uh, that when they put their uh, uh, reverse osmosis equipment in and, and new pasteurization equipment, 
uh, street legal became a fixture in my fridge because sometimes I don't need the alcohol. I just want to drink a beer. Um, this next one, it's a little bit of a complaint about your old company, Labatt. Okay. He asks, uh, Jason Bellevue asks, why is Labatt Blue so inconsistent from one bottle to the next? All right. And I'm going to say it shouldn't be. And I left, I left Labatt, uh, well, more than a long time ago. I don't even want to count 16 years ago, I guess now. Um, so I can't tell you what they're doing now, but I can tell you the best practice that, uh, that you can use and should be being used. I hope it's being used is what used to happen is first of all, when you make beer, you don't have a, you have a recipe, but the recipe is fluid. It changes. What you want to aim for is a set of end specifications. That is what the, um, consumer is looking for. And the consumer knows beer. They drink more of our beer than, than we do, really. Uh, they also drink more in terms of taste panel. We frequently do sip, well, our tasting is mostly sip testing as opposed to they drink a whole bottle. So the other thing that I think is really important is what, and what certainly used to happen is what was called an interplant exchange. And if someone's got two breweries out there, this is my recommendation is there's blind tasting of the brewer of the beers of one brand of all the different breweries so that you can, and we did this at Guinness, all the Guinnesses from around the world would go to Dublin and the Dublin panel tasted and they're tasted against each other to see, to make sure that all of them are within a commercial spectrum. So I, I don't know where you're tasting yours. Um, but I have great respect for consumers um, and their ability to tell when there's things wrong. And if I can tell one more story, I was in Russia uh, in a, uh, and I got a call from uh, one of my technical people going, you need to get down to Saransk Brewery in a, in a hurry, Nancy. There's a whole bunch of beer here we don't think should be sold. Can you get on the train and come down? Well, the, there was, there was <laughs> we always stayed in the first class cars where you got to sleep on your own and there wasn't any first class tickets um, available and I needed to get there. So the company bought me four second class tickets, which meant I had the whole uh, train compartment to myself because I was going to be sleeping overnight. So I got on the train and man, my Russian was getting okay by that point in time. And the little, the train conductor woman uh, came along and asked for the tickets. And she looked at them and said, there's four tickets. And I said, yes. Mm -hmm. And she says, where's the others? And I said, nope, they're all for me. I'm staying here alone. And she, we repeated this a couple of times until she was convinced no one else was coming. And she took the tickets and went away. And then she came back with the police. Oh my God. A young, uh, a young, soldier a young russian soldier and he was clearly the security person on the train and he came in and he said where are you going and i said i'm going to saransk well what are you where what are you doing there i says i'm going to the brewery i'm going to visit the brewery and he immediately sat down across from me and proceeded to explain how when he drank tolstia fat man beer uh, stout man beer. When he drank it in Moscow, he really, really liked it. And when he drank it in Saransk, he didn't oh. like it. And he, 
And he said, and why, why is that? He says, now I go to Moscow on the train and I buy beer from Moscow and I bring it there. Well, the beer from Moscow was being mm. brewed at another brewery okay. that was closer to Moscow. And so what he was, and I said, well, what do you taste? And he started, my Russian wasn't that good. But by the end of it, I said, you know, that's actually why I'm going there. I'm going to work on that problem. And, and he said, oh, good, do a good job. And he smiled and thanked me and he left. And that was it. I locked the door and, and I went down. But that consumer can tell the difference. So I, I have Nancy's 10 rules of brewing. And that's number one, respect your consumer. That they're, if the beer doesn't taste good and if the consumer doesn't think it tastes good, then it's not, then it's not good beer. So I would phone the brewery and go, I think your beer is inconsistent. And there should be someone there in the quality department that's interested in listening to you about that. Mm, okay. Thank you for that. Right. Um, yes. Our next question comes from Scott Clay. What are your thoughts on Kvike yeast? I think Kvike yeast is what every home brewer needs to have. Um, and it's also, it's, uh, so I brewed for it the first time a few years ago. Um, and I was, it's, the thing that I love about it is that it ferments at a very wide range of temperatures. To ferment beer at 30 or 37 degrees with the Saccharomyces cerevisiae um, or pastorianus, the, the culture yeast that we use, that would be unheard of. We, or your yeast would be dead. So what you've got is a yeast that's really resilient and able to work without great temperature control. So if you're doing brewing at home, this is a whole lot easier. Or if you don't have good temperature control or enough of a glycol supply in your brewery, hmm. it's great for summer uh, brewing. It produces lovely citrus, pineapple uh, flavors. So if you like those, and they're very, po you know, those are very popular flavors right now. So the consumer uh, likes them as well. And I'm going to tell, can I tell another story? Oh, Sorry, yes. I'm full of them. Love your story. So I, the first time I, <laughs> the first time I brewed with Kvike was um, Martina, uh, who's the laboratory uh, manager, teach instructor at Kwanlin. We were getting ready for our international, our Pink Boots International um, uh, Women's Day brewing. So we wanted to try this stuff first. And Martina and I, and uh, I don't, there was a, there was a student with us and I don't remember who it, who it was. The three of us were brewing this, this trial beer. And Mart I'm, I'm a stickler. I'm always asking people if they have enough oxygen. So Martina's going, yes, and there's three valves and we have to open the three valves on the oxygen system to put it, uh, to get, make sure that all the oxygen's in. And it's our, our um, little work cooler is designed, you know, for more normal temperatures, you know, maybe 10 to 20 degrees Celsius is what it's used. So we're trying to use it at, we were trying to cool in at 30 degrees. And this, and so it was really, we're having a lot of problems controlling the speed and the cooling. And we got finished and Martina looked at me and said, oh my God, there were four valves. So we had done this entire cooling with no oxygen uh, going into the wart, which is, you know, no oxygen, no growth. So there we sat going, all right, what are our options? And we, we plugged a oxygen line to the bottom of the tank and let it, uh, let it uh, bubble up through it. 
that wasn't going to be entirely successful. We thought we'd try. And then we sat down and said, okay, what are our options? Well, we looked at, there's a, there's a Master Brewers um, uh, technical article about um, the people at New Belgium who a few, few years ago had done some trials. And, and we replicated some of them at Kwantlen. Uh, that the the role of the oxygen is to create um, the new membrane material to enable yeast growth. So you put a little bit of yeast in, you add the oxygen, you grow it up until you get enough to do the fermentation. So what New Belgian had done is they had uh, used olive oil and put olive oil in with the yeast and then no oxygen fermented, worked well, flavor was good, our people, uh, J- Derek and John, had tried it uh, at our brewery once, uh, but all of those ones had added the yeast five hours before the pitching. And we didn't have that because we was 6.30 at night and we wanted to go home. So then we thought, okay, well, if we can't grow yeast, can we put some more in? And Martina went, aha, she had propagated the yeast, so she still had uh, a big five-liter flask of, uh, of, propag- of uh, yeast that she propagated. So she brought it over. And we sat on the floor, we divided it in between two flasks, put a, put a foil top on it, and we shook the yeast uh, for, I don't know how long we sat there. But by shaking the yeast, we were entraining oxygen into it. And then we just put it all into the fermenter. So we had overpitched, we'd put as much oxygen as we could in, but we weren't really convinced. We really didn't know what was going to happen. And... The next morning, there was someone coming in the next morning. So I said, tell me what, and, it, and by the next morning, we brewed it, I think, 13 Play-Doh, and it was down to five Play-Doh. So it, it had more than fermented out, uh, was it? So it saved us. It was a great tasting uh, beer, but who knew? So it's very, it's very resilient. I still advise putting oxygen into your wort uh, as, you're, uh, as you're cooling it. Um, so yeah, ferments quickly makes fruity tasting beers and it's dead easy to use. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Nancy. I know you've got to run as well. You've got a yoga class. You've got a catch. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. I'm sure people will enjoy this. You always have the best stories anyway. Thank you for, uh, thank you for asking me and for inviting me and for listening. <laughs> All right. Okay. I'll see you. Bye.